Hello, and welcome to Secrets of Saturn. I am Jason Lindgren, your host. Of course, anyone who might be familiar with what we do here knows that I have not done this in quite some time. And we are going to pick up, actually, where we left off two years ago with Wayne McCroy. And today, we are going to discuss the agenda. And what I mean by that is the agenda that is being pushed in an insane fashion in so many of the intellectual properties, the entertainment business, all of that. We're going to break this down in a way that I don't think anyone else really does, or at least not any of the uh, nerd channels, as I like to call them. The people who are really into this stuff, they recognize what's going on, but they don't know what's behind it. Now, of course, there are other truther-type channels who certainly break things down and try to point things out. But anyway, Wayne, welcome. Let's have a great night here together, brother. Sounds good, my friend. I'm glad to do this once again. This is something that uh, we've discussed uh, talking about on the air for a long time now, and I think it's it's due time that uh, we just lay it all on the line and, and show the fan base, what is really going on behind the scenes with the intellectual properties that they've grown up with and loved. That's right. We have been going back and forth quite a lot for ages now. We've been talking about doing something like this probably for like a year, if I really had to think about it. And what I'd really like this episode to be is a precursor to a regular live stream that you and I would like to do. And we don't know when exactly we're going to start that. We're going to check our schedules and see if we can make it happen. But what we would like to do is a regular weekly live stream where we can discuss current events and all that, that Wayne and I can break down and possibly even bring guests on and things like that. So that's something for everyone to look forward to if indeed you are interested. But anyway, let's let's get into this, man. So there is absolutely no doubt whatsoever that Hollywood and the extended entertainment businesses around the world are absolutely pushing an agenda. And it's an extended agenda into several things. And the thing we really have to ask ourselves, and people who aren't necessarily conspiratorially minded, are wondering, why are they doing this? The majority of their fan bases do not want the kind of things that they're pushing. So let me hand it over to you and let you start this off. Why do you think that this is going on on so many levels? Well, here's how we could break it down and, you know, put it in a logical way that people could follow. Okay, logic would tell you, first off, okay. If you're talking about uh, these entertainment uh, properties that people are are heavily into, what would be the what would you think would be the number one goal of said property? Making money, right? Right, and this is what I say all the time. And I'll just throw out the biggest money maker example. How on earth do you lose money on a Star Wars movie? That shouldn't even be possible if you even remotely make something decent but uh, go ahead and carry on oh let alone to just to go with what you're saying star wars it's a classic property and i believe it's also the the top tell top selling toy brand of all time i mean as far as merchandise and everything go, that goes along with it tie in with a franchise it has to be number one now i don't have any data sheets in front of me to prove that but just thinking back to when we were kids and for anyone who doesn't know wayne and i grew up together so we have the same influences we're really close in the same age so yeah like star wars had the direct tie-in and that was actually one of the brilliant things that george lucas did 
was do the merchandising behind it as opposed to taking fees up front. And I'm talking about way back when in the late 70s, he was brilliant about this. He, he knew somehow he knew that this was going to take off. And yeah, Star Wars has massive merchandising attached to it. And even that's failing on top of what's going on with the, with the movies and all that. But uh, it, sorry, go ahead. Oh, that's that's right. I mean, and you can even look at uh, the mainstream entertainment that'll actually show you this is a fact. Uh, off air, we were talking about a show called The Toys That Made Us. And there's an episode on that specifically about uh, Star Wars, the toys, the Star Wars toys, and how, uh, you know, like you said, George Lucas, uh, you know, the whole marketing idea behind that was brilliant. And that is the place where he made an absolute ton of money is in the merchandising of these toys and the, the development of these toys. Uh, that was a fortune that they made doing this. Now, if you're talking about a property that generated this huge amount of sales in, in just toys and stuff alone back then, and even when they did the prequel movies, even the toys did decent then with the exception of a couple things like, a, I think, the Jar Jar Binks figures or whatever didn't sell. But uh, <laughs> The know, Jar Jar Binks reasons. soap dispenser. <laughs> yeah. Makes it annoying as hell. Uh, but anyway... <laughs> I, I digress on that but uh even those toys sold halfway decent but uh they were even saying in this episode of the toys that made us they have a whole bunch of extra inventory and stuff from from this last batch that uh, people just do not want to buy they're they're like in the uh the death knell discount bins at the the toy stores and stuff people just aren't picking them up and this is something that's largely shifted from kids buying these things to play with more to collectors willing to spend top dollar for uh, these specially made and very uh, very detailed toys and collectible items. And, and the fan base, uh, the, these collectors, they're not picking this stuff up in the newer ones because of the whole agenda behind it. Right. Well, the characters themselves aren't very appealing to people who might necessarily be the kind of people who would buy such a thing. And let's let's even break this down really simple. Who goes out and spends money on these things? Really, there's two groups I think we could safely say. Parents buying for children, right? That's probably a very safe bet. Second would be probably like nerdy dudes, but women definitely get in there too. But the nerd has always been more of a dude kind of thing. I think it's safe to admit that. But women definitely have gained percentages over the years that they've gotten more into it, I guess it's safe to say, right? Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, when you're looking at where the dollars are actually spent, uh, you're talking, it's some of these older nerdy types that uh, have been following this stuff. I mean, this is the fan base of, of this, the people that grew up with it. And, uh, you know, felt like it was a, a, an important part of their childhoods or their early development. And they want to stay attached to this franchise and the good messages and stuff that were sent out by the early movies. So uh, when you're looking at who's spending the money on it, it's these collectors, these 30 and 40 somethings now, the ones that grew up with it. They always say that that demographic that they're looking for is 18 to 49. Right. That's who they're targeting. That's the biggest spender. And let's actually make sure we mention why do people want these items, these things, these things, the related merchandise? Why do people want that in the first place? Because they want to feel a part of the story, whatever it is, the film, the television show, whatever it happens to be. They want to feel like they're a part of that. They want to feel more connected. They want more of whatever it is they felt from that 
they want more of it. And even if it's just something as silly, like I'm thinking back to when we were kids, as reading the cards on the back of the boxes and things like that. Like whatever it is we could do to get more. I've seen the movie. I've made my dad take me a hundred times. I want more. So you want this merchandise. And what we're discussing here is the fact that people don't want the merchandise, at least nowhere near to the extent that they used to. And this tells you that these companies that are the holders of these intellectual properties are failing to appease their fans. And that's what we're going to really break down here is why would you do that? Why would you put out a product knowing that it does not have the greatest appeal to the fan base that's already established that you know are going to pull out their wallets and put their money down? Absolutely. And that's that's the whole thing right there. What people need to understand is this this is an agenda uh, that's being pushed forward on purpose. And uh, the agenda is not about making money. And that they've made it obvious on the face of it just by, uh, you know, this strategy. So there's something that these uh, Hollywood producers and stuff are looking for that they deem to be more important than the bottom line. So uh, when you look at it from that perspective, it, it makes you wonder, what exactly is it that's going on? Well, I think we could go ahead and look at uh, what was it about the original Star Wars films that made them successful. And it was an engaging story with likable, believable characters that uh, grew and developed through the course of the films. And it followed a very, very old formula that you're very familiar with, Jason, and so am I. And this is called The Hero's Journey. Absolutely. It's so important that you follow this narration. Now, it doesn't have to be exactly bit for bit and follow all the steps and all that. But George Lucas himself will tell you that he followed the hero's journey, the Joseph Campbell book he read, Hero of a Thousand Faces, that we've actually broken down on uh, Crow Triple Seven Radio. And if you don't do this, you don't have character development, I think is the absolute most basic way you can boil this down. If you don't follow something along these lines, you don't have proper character development, and therefore you end up with characters that don't seem very relatable. And I think that's probably as basic as I could break it down. What do you think? Right. And, you know, when you look at that, uh, within this whole concept and this idea of the hero's journey, uh, you can break down even further and say there's only a very limited number of actual storylines in any film or any any type of a story. And that goes for everything, books, te television shows, any type of entertainment or any type of story, there's usually just these key elements that go along with it. And that's what will make or break a successful story. So if you don't have these elements falling in place, and I think uh, the original Star Wars film put these these different elements in place perfectly. And that's why it was such a huge success. If you don't do that, though, then you're not going to have a successful or engaging story that people are going to want to see again and be more involved with and get more of. So if you're not doing these things, you're not putting out a successful product. And if you're a Hollywood producer and you're not putting out a successful product, you're not making money. And if you're not making the studio money, why would they keep you on the job unless there's something else going on? And that's what the big thing is right now. That's what we're here to discuss. Right. There is something going on. You can't lose millions upon millions upon millions of dollars without there being something else going on. People get fired in the real world if the numbers aren't where 
the expectations and projections are. It's not necessarily that, okay, we didn't make quite as much as we were hoping. It's we didn't make anywhere near what was thought to be going on, but no one loses their job. That doesn't happen in real corporate, In well, I was going to say corporate America, but in the real corporate world in general, because it doesn't necessarily even have to be America. It could be anywhere. If you're in a corporate job and you are not performing to the standards that are expected of you, the job that you're probably getting paid a hell of a lot of money to do, if you're not doing it, bye-bye. Right, and that's the other thing, especially when you already have the winning formula for this, which Star Wars had in spades. It's the winning formula for how to produce a quality science fiction movie that's going to make a huge hit at the box office and, you know, generate huge merchandising sales and stuff with it. It's it's a no brainer, really. I mean, they have the successful formula. It's just follow the same format. And that's all they had to do. If the if it ain't broke, don't try to fix it. And and they did not do that. They didn't follow the format they had. Now, just to finish up with the merchandising side of things, and we'll probably touch on this more in a little bit when we get to the other major intellectual property we're going to discuss, which is Doctor Who. But let's stick on the Star Wars thing for a moment. I was very young, four to five years old, when Star Wars, which was just called Star Wars at the time, not even A New Hope, came out in 1977. It was groundbreaking in so many ways. And I remember the first time I saw the first 12 Kenner action figures in Kmart. And my brother and I, I have an older brother, we were both excited to see them. And I got R2-D2 and C-3PO. And I'm trying to remember if he got Han Solo and Chewbacca or Darth Vader and a Stormtrooper first. We used to get them in pairs. And, well, when you're that young, your memory's a little hazy. But I definitely remember getting R2-D2 and C-3PO first. And just being thrilled beyond all belief, sitting in the back of my grandfather's car while we were driving home, I just overjoyed that I had this extension of this amazing movie that I do have very distinct memories of seeing for the first time. And it was in an old theater in Exeter, Pennsylvania that used to be a real theater that was converted to be a, a movie theater. And I remember being up in the balcony, leaning on the brass rail and seeing all of these images for the first time, Darth Vader coming through and all that, and just being like, wow. I don't know how you can drop the ball after spending four plus billion dollars on this intellectual property and not be able to carry it forward, especially with the level of technology that exists now to make movies impressive beyond all belief. And to be fair, that is about the only thing they're getting right. The technology, meaning the special effects and all that, do look sensationally fantastic. If your movie doesn't look good these days, if you have a, a sizable budget, you're really doing something wrong. And these movies do. They look good. The filmography is great. And speaking as somebody who now has ventured into the world of filmmaking, I can look at the directorship and be like, oh, yeah, they did that great. But the writing and the characterization and all those things are just completely off base. They are not what they should be in a movie that it, <laughs> it costs so much money to make this thing happen. And yet you're not hitting your target audience in any way, shape, or form. Even children who should love everything you do. It's not even happening there. 
So this is why we're seeing the merchandise sales not being what they should be, because the two demographics that I mentioned a few minutes ago, that being parents buying for the children who would want such things, and your nerds, your older people, who are so interested in these particular properties that they want more of it, neither of those groups are interested. And so you're going to Dollar Tree and seeing Star Wars The Last Jedi crap, because nobody wanted it. Not only that, you're going to these uh, other discount stores like uh, the the ones that buy out uh, the inventories of the other stores, like these these overstock type stores. That's where this stuff's turning up. I mean, you're talking uh, a big chain here in the Northeast is called Big Lots, and that that that's one of the ones that buys up all this stuff that nobody bought at full retail price at any of the other retailers, and they heavily discount it. So that it's it's dirt cheap and people still aren't buying it there. So, I mean, that should tell you something in and of itself. Uh, the thing is, you could have the best cinematography in the world and, you know, the, the best special effects. But if there's not a story there carrying it all forward, people just aren't engaged by it, especially now. I mean, we've gotten to the point where, you know, in just about any movie you go to see has all these great uh, CGI special effects and stuff like that going on. So it's it's something that's kind of been normalized now. So people kind of expect it. So if you go to see the latest Star Wars movie, you're expecting something spectacular and better than, like, say, an average film that would come out that has the good CGI or whatever in it. So th- there's that next level that, uh, you know, the, the fan base expects. And it's just not there because there's no engaging story storytelling or character development going on. Right. Now, let's be very serious here in the fact that there is a standard or an expectation about the way movies should look these days as far as the camera work, the special effects and all that. We know that we're not even remotely talking about that. If films don't have that, then somebody somewhere didn't do their jobs properly or the budget wasn't there. But the budget is always going to be there for something like a Star Wars movie, even the ones that weren't part of this Disney trilogy looked phenomenal the uh, the Rogue One uh, standalone story and the um, Han Solo standalone story. And I could tear those apart. Uh, well, Rogue One wasn't that bad, but the Han Solo one, in, in my opinion, was so badly miscast. You can't have a super alpha male person like Harrison Ford with that great big deep voice of his and that on-screen charisma playing Han Solo and other people too, of course, like Indiana Jones and uh, Decker in Blade Runner, like Harrison Ford is a classic old school actor, very masculine. Of course, he's Han Solo. He embodies that. The, the individual they cast as the young Han Solo is, I mean, he's a fine actor. I didn't have a problem with his acting capabilities, but the gravitas was not there. So whose fault is that? This is yet another thing we can talk about. What is going on here? Like these things should be being addressed at the highest levels of, well, in this case, it would be Lucasfilm. But with the other intellectual properties, of course, we're going to talk about uh, there's other things going on as well. Right. And that's that's the key point to all of this. Uh, any any director or you know producer that's worth their salt uh, would look at these things and make sure that they're making a good call on casting, first of all. And second of all, they'd make sure that they had a compelling storyline to go with. And that the writing was there to support uh, the actual special effects and, you know, the cinematography and all of that. But uh, that's something that's kind of been pushed to the back burner. Uh, instead, they're putting forward 
this agenda that they've been pushing. And uh, make no mistake about it, what's behind this agenda that they're pushing is a little something called social engineering. Right. Now let's get into this. We'll take Star Wars first and then we'll move into Doctor Who. I think it's really obvious with Doctor Who. (laughs) I mean, there's just no way to look away from that and not see what's going on. It's so freaking obvious. And I'll be blunt about that. A bunch of gender-bending weirdos think that this is okay to do to a character that has always been male for decades. Literally, today is the 56th anniversary of Doctor Who. And always the character of the Doctor has been male. And now all of a sudden, because everybody's into this weird gender fluidity thing, they think that, oh, we're just going to start reflecting this onto all of our other things uh, that that we're supposed to have as entertainment and think that everybody's going to be cool with it. Well, not everybody is cool with it, but we'll get to Doctor Who. Let's, Let's stick with Star Wars for now. Of course, we had the original trilogy, which ended in 1983. We had the prequel trilogy, which had a lot of mixed results, but... I personally always liked the prequel trilogy because I never, 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 never in 1999 walking into that, never thought for a second that this is going to be comparable to the original trilogy just because the whole point of this prequel trilogy was to tell a backstory. They're filling in the details of what went on before the best trilogy ever. And I just didn't have a problem with any of it. I thought it was extremely well cast. Of course, George Lucas did what he always does, and that's push the envelope to do better and better things. And I liked it. I don't think the stories were like absolutely mind-numbingly amazing, but I really did enjoy them. And looking back now, they're light years ahead of anything that's been produced by Disney. Right, and that's that's the other point we should point out with this whole thing too is the the major fan base of the Star Wars uh, series when the prequels came out, a lot of them were highly critical of those too, and you know those actually in retrospect were not bad films. I'll agree with you; they were they were entertaining. Uh, they they held your uh, interest, and there was actually decent stories there and. We went in knowing, okay, this is kind of the backstory filling it in, but we didn't know exactly how all the details were going to work out. And another thing with those films is they did a decent job with the merchandising of it all, too. So, I mean, the elements were there for those three films. Um, and that that's kind of the thing that's missing in uh, the the newer films. Uh, the elements were there for those old, old films, those prequels. But carrying it forward to today... Uh, there's something else entirely going on with the, the new films. Exactly. So Disney buys the Star Wars property. Well, let's just be let's be really specific here. They bought Lucasfilm, which included the Star Wars property, but also Indiana Jones and everything else that uh, George Lucas had done, including Howard the Duck, just to be funny. And Willow. Remember Willow? I remember Willow. That's another that's a that's a film that I had largely forgotten about now that you mention it. Yes, they bought Lucasfilm uh, for over four billion dollars. I think if I recall the way that went down, it was two billion dollars in ish in cash and then two billion ish in Disney stock. So funny enough, George Lucas, technically speaking, would have an interest that Star Wars and Lucasfilm in general would still be successful for the company that bought it because what his value is going to be reflected out of it is going to come from how well that does. 
So he has an interest. And of course, one of the things that was admitted recently, I don't know if you know this or not, Wayne, is that George Lucas did have story treatments for seven, eight, and nine episodes. And the people at Lucasfilm, this would be Kathleen Kennedy and the other people who are up in the uh, echelon of of Lucasfilm now, they just threw him in the trash, wanted nothing to do with it. And they got in J.J. Abrams, who I know a lot of the nerd channels like to call Jar Jar Abrams, and I'm actually right there with them. Jar Jar Abrams does really good filmography, cinematography and all that, but man, he is a franchise killer. He just takes an idea and then turns it into what he thinks it should be and then just lets it drop and doesn't finish anything. But I'm not here to slam people who make millions of dollars more than I do every day. We're here to talk about why would they allow the things that have gone on to go on. And I think it's obvious. You don't make these kinds of properties do bad on purpose. Let's just put it that way. I can only imagine that there must be shareholders that must be answered to. And somewhere on the giant pyramid of things, in the way the world is really structured, it's okay now to lose money as long as whatever it is you're trying to get across to the general public is being successfully pushed. And, you know, that's actually an interesting question in and of itself. Is it being successfully pushed if people don't even want to go see it? Like, people boycotted the Solo movie, for instance, and it lost a lot of money. And I'm talking about millions of dollars. It lost a lot of money, predominantly because of the the backlash from the movie The Last Jedi. And this is another thing that blows my mind about all of this, is that the writer-director for The Last Jedi, which is the second of the Disney trilogy, his name is Ryan Johnson, he would mouth off to fans on Twitter, and I guess other social media, I don't know that much, but I know for sure on Twitter, and he was never told to shut the hell up. Would you attack your fan base if you want to make money and have a successful property? That, in my opinion, is absolute insanity. That's a that's a page out of the Brie Larson play, playbook right there. Uh, She's another example, but, dude. And, yeah, know, and again, this is another Disney property. And we could get into the Marvel Universe, the cinematic universe, as well as the comics. But I think we've got enough on our plate just dealing with Star Wars and Doctor Who. And we can break down the other properties and really get into the meat of them when we start doing our live streams. Oh, definitely. Yeah, there's a lot to be... Uh to be said about a lot of these different things, but uh, let's not drop the ball about Brie Larson. She is a piece of work, man. <laughs> no, that's for sure. We'll get into that some other time on, you know, some, some other show that we do, but uh, let's just stick to the big two that we're looking at today, the star Wars and the doctor who. Uh, so basically what is this social engineering that we're speaking of? That's, that's been going on. What's this agenda? Let's take a look at it. A lot of it has to do with these, uh, quote unquote, social justice warrior type issues, along with, uh, you know, this this hyper feminist type, uh, you know, third wave feminist movement, along with uh, also mixed in there, this whole trans movement that's been going on in society today. Um, All of this is being heavily pushed. So. We got to ask the question, why is this being heavily pushed and why are they trying to normalize this by putting this in our entertainment? That's it. So let's break that down. Let's talk about this Disney trilogy that is supposed to be a sequel to the six original George Lucas movies, but the characterizations are wrong. Han Solo was kind of Han Solo, but Luke Skywalker, 
No, that was not Luke Skywalker. Nothing about that character other than being played by the actor Mark Hamill was the original Luke Skywalker. Luke Skywalker was always the hopeful individual looking to the stars, always wanting to conquer all and believing that good exists in everyone. And instead, we have a grumpy old man who isn't even really that old. I guess he's supposed to be in his late 50s or early 60s. I'm not exactly sure. But that's not that old. That's not like 90 going, get off my lawn, you know? Right. That's the thing. I mean, the the way that they, they, they just killed Luke Skywalker's character. They really did. That was not, uh, you know, the Luke Skywalker that was portrayed in the original trilogy. In the original trilogy, he was portrayed, he was your quintessential good guy. You know, he was, he was the hero archetype. He, he was the one that uh, would do what he had to do to make sure that people were taken care of. And this is the complete opposite of what he is in, in the, these newer movies. Um, it, and it's, it's terrible what they did to his character. They, they really slammed him. They slammed him down hard. And the only reason I could figure they did this was to try to make the protagonist in the new films, Ray, look more heroic, I guess. I, I mean, that's, that's what you could say. I mean, they, they had to make Luke Skywalker look pathetic in order to make this character look better. That's exactly it. And let's break down Ray. Let's even start with the name, Ray. Now, even though it's spelled R-E-Y, why would a character be named Ray? What do you think that might be mm, symbolically related to, in your opinion, Wayne? Well, that directly ties back to the old esoteric idea of the sun. Rays from the sun. And or rays from the stars. Light, right. And this goes back to uh, some some teachings from some different secret societies that we could speak of, of the Golden Dawn in particular. There's a lot of this stuff that goes on, and, and a lot of these esoteric secret societies encode heavily in the entertainment industry a lot of these different things. And that's that's a direct play on this with this name, Ray. And it also ties back to uh, ancient Egypt, Ra. Ra was pronounced Ray back in you know, the ancient Egyptian pantheon. And that's immediately what I thought of when I first saw the character, too. Right. I mean, that's the sun god. And this is an archetypal image that this is something people need to understand, okay? Even if you're not familiar necessarily with, like, Egyptian mythology or any of these other things that we're speaking of, these esoteric-type ideas, which esoteric just means hidden. If you're not familiar with these ideas, these archetypes are something that are kind of inherent in all people. Uh, you will understand unconsciously what the symbolism and stuff is behind this, whether you realize it consciously or not. So it does make an impression on your mind, but it makes an impression on your unconscious mind, which will carry forward into your conscious life later on. And this is a psychological thing that goes on. People could look up the works of, uh, of Carl Jung to understand the whole idea of archetypes, but this is what they're doing. They're implanting this archetype with these type characters. And another reason that they choose the name Ray is this is kind of an androgynous type name. This is traditionally uh, considered a masculine name, and they're attributing it to a female character. And they've done this in other franchises, too. Like one of the new Star Treks, they have a female lead character that's named Michael. <laughs> Even more directly masculine. Right. For a female character. Precisely. And you got to ask, well, why would they do this? Mm. 
Exactly. This is what we're we're on about here. So let's finish with Ray. Now, this is not any offense to the actress who plays the character, but she's not the most drop-dead gorgeous feminine person that could theoretically be cast. I think that's safe to say, right? Oh, definitely. And I think they were looking for, you know, an actress with a little bit more of a, a masculine look. You'll notice she's kind of like understated in, in the way she's that they, they have her costume design and stuff like that as well. Like there's nothing overtly feminine about the character, even though it's understood she's a female. Still, they they like to play this whole gender bending game with all of this. Right. And that's exactly where I'm going with that. She's wearing an outfit that's uh, Jedi-ish, I guess you could say, as far as drawing from the old school stuff. But she's not overly feminine. She has longer hair and she kind of sort of stylizes it. But no, she's she's kind of thin and, you know, I guess we could be rude and say she kind of has the body of a 14-year-old boy. Uh, Maybe underneath all that, but you never find out. I mean, we're certainly not talking about Princess Leia in the metal bikini and Return of the Jedi kind of thing. I mean, night and day difference to to just to get that on the record. Right. And as I recall, in the actual, the first movie of the trilogy, uh, when they introduce her character at first, it's in, in the desert of, I think it's Jakku. Is that the name of the planet? Yeah, Jakku. But uh, anyway, she, she was wearing a mask or something at that time, and you really couldn't tell what the gender of this character was at first because they, they showed her, uh, you know, uh, picking up junk from a, a crashed Imperial uh, uh, Star starship or something yeah. like that. Right. As I recall. So, you know, when they introduced the character there, you didn't know, was this a man, a woman, was this supposed to be the main character? What was going on? Because when they first released this first film of the trilogy, people weren't really up on what characters were going to play what parts yet because they hadn't really introduced the new characters. So they kind of had this air of mystery about it. And they did that on purpose, too. And, you know, had this as a vaguely androgynous type character in the beginning. So you couldn't tell. And just like with the original trilogy, they did create three main characters. And that would be Ray, the former Stormtrooper character, Finn, and then the great rebel pilot, Poe. But these characters just don't have the charisma or the interest that Luke, Han, and Leia did. Halfway through the original Star Wars movie, and you were seriously invested in these characters. You know where I'm going with this? Like, people really were into them, and it just wasn't there with The Force Awakens. And the moment Harrison Ford comes on screen as Han Solo, all of a sudden, it's obvious. Boom. Charisma. There is a presence there. Han Solo and Chewbacca are on the Millennium Falcon, and all the nostalgic feels are there. Definitely, and that's something that they could have played up big time, but they they kind of were a little, you know, I, I would say underwhelming with it, because it was only, you know, in that, that one part of the movie when, you know, they, they first bring Han Solo and Chewbacca on the scene, and uh, I guess they were kind of counting on that, banking on that to kind of save the film, honestly, but uh, it, it just couldn't, it couldn't make up for the lackluster uh, character development that was going on before their arrival. Well, what's interesting is The Force Awakens did make a zillion dollars. I don't know what it was, but it made a stupid amount of money. And everything was set up for the following one, of course, which is The Last Jedi. And I'm not going to say The Last Jedi didn't make money. 
It did, but nowhere near the amount of money that The Force Awakens did, because as soon as it got out that this movie is trash and trashed Luke Skywalker and just was the dumbest freaking thing I've ever seen, and I have only ever seen The Last Jedi once and I have never intended to ever see it again, I can't believe that they took it that far and threw away so much with one film. And again, as I mentioned earlier, the director, writer, Ryan Johnson, would attack fans who would come at him and be like, what the hell, dude? I mean, granted, some of them, I'm sure, were seriously immature towards somebody. But <laughs> to have a major director act this immature on social media blows my mind. That would be like if Donald Trump individually went back and fired at people coming at him. You don't see things like that. I mean, that's just insane. A director who just spent hundreds of millions of dollars of Lucasfilm's, technically Disney's, money, now acts like a 14-year-old throwing a hissy fit on the playground at middle school. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, when you look at it from that perspective, it, this is not something that should happen in you know the, the professional uh, entertainment field. You would think that this guy would understand this is his bread and butter, you know? You, you don't want to be alienating your fan base. And that's exactly what he was doing. And it's it's just un- unfathomable. Like, why would you do this? He must have been pretty secure in, you know, his job, that he would still have a job mouthing off to uh, the people that are actually paying his paycheck when you, you look at it from that perspective. It really does blow my mind. And uh, from what I know, he was kept around to do more. He was scheduled to do a trilogy in the Star Wars universe of his own. And I think that might not be happening anymore, but we don't even need to even go any further with that. I think people know enough about what was going on around The Last Jedi and that that was really the cause of the boycott of the Solo standalone movie and why it lost millions of dollars. From what I understand, it didn't break even, but uh, I don't have those numbers in front of me and I'm not that worried about. That's something people can look up on their own if they want to know. But from what I understand, they lost money on a Star Wars movie, and that fact alone really blows my mind. Yeah, the other fact along with that is you're talking Star Wars is losing money, and Disney's losing money. I've never known Disney to ever wind up doing something that wasn't going to produce huge amounts of money for them. Not just the movie itself, but the merchandising. That's a big, big, big deal for them. And they've always made money. I don't think they've ever lost money, to be honest with you. Not not uh, once they became known as Disney with the reputation that Disney is. So let's take this to the conclusion because we still need to get to Doctor Who. Star Wars has been completely turned upside down. They still, of course, have a massive fan base. But because of the actions and the attitudes of the people who are producing Star Wars content, they've really driven people away from all that. And I'm just going to hand this back to you for a moment. Go ahead and break down whatever symbolism and whatever else you have seen in Star Wars since it has been taken over by Disney. And let's lay that out for folks. Okay, well, we could definitely look. What they're doing is they're trying to take the old hero archetype and flip it upside down and turn it into the anti-hero type archetype. Uh, thus, they, they trash Luke Skywalker's character. And instead of having a strong male lead, now all of a sudden they're going to throw in this lackluster female lead who can pretty much do anything the boys could do, but do it better and without any training or anything like that, just to kind of push this whole 
you know, female empowerment narrative or whatever it is they're trying to do, uh, this whole gender confusion thing that goes along with it. And uh, there's no real character development there. And that's why the character is largely unlikable. Uh, I mean, when you, when you think about the character of Ray, what personality traits does she have? Yeah, let's just be blunt here, dude. She's boring. Right. What personality traits does she have? I couldn't even describe her to you. Like, what is she? I don't know. Like Luke, Luke Skywalker. Luke Skywalker, you could say, in the original films, okay, he was young, he was brash, he was kind of unlearned in the, the ways of the world. But he was spunky. Right, he was spunky, he had a good heart, and uh, he was a likable character. Hopeful was the big word. Right. Because, of course, that's why Star Wars got named A New Hope, when it was obvious Star Wars was going to be a thing to be reckoned with. Right, and that, that's the thing, and you could see Luke's character develop as the films went on. But uh, this character, there's no development at all. She has zero personality. Like, you can't even really name a personality trait she has other than dull or boring. I mean, she's a good guy, a good girl. <laughs> you know, she's supposed to be the good person. She's the hero. And in that sense, yes, she she does do heroic things in that she's protecting what's supposed to be good and, and lawful, I guess you could say. But as far as having real character traits, I don't know, man. She's boring. That's a big no. And, you know, from the trailers I've seen from the new film coming out, even, you know, the whole good guy aspect of it might get turned on its head. <laughs> what do you do with that? I think the, the character of Kylo Ren, the villain in the movie, was a little bit more engaging because at least he had personality traits. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, when you're taking the, the big bad guy and making him more likable than the good guy. Think about that for a second. It's a complete inversion of, of where we've come from and what makes for a successful story. Yeah. And the thing about Kylo is, interestingly enough, he's not even respectable as the bad guy, though. Yes, he does things that would be considered evil, but he throws hissy fits like a teenager. And yet this massive thing called the First Order, which is basically the Empire with a different name, they all look up to him and obey his commands. I can't believe no one's popped him in the back of the head. Like, screw this kid. He's he's unstable. He's an emotional wreck. And uh, yeah, he can wave that lightsaber around and choke people and whatever, but he's not very impressive as a leader. No, but that's the thing. But see, you could at least point out those personality traits. He's whiny and annoying. Well, at least he has some. And he's, he's, <laughs> right. And he's a brat who they, they bite their tongue and, and listen to him because they have to. And I think it's more out of fear of, say, Snoke or somebody like that, more so than of him. So it's one of those things where at least he's got personality traits and people could relate to that. You know what I mean? Even though he's the bad guy. Uh, but still, I mean, that character is more likable than Ray's character. So, like, <laughs> what does that tell you? Minimally more interesting, I guess we could say. Right. So there's probably a lot more we could tear apart. Well, I know there's a lot more we could tear apart into Star Wars, but we've already gone quite a ways into an hour here discussing Star Wars, and we can tear this down more in future live streams and all that. But is there anything you want to finish up with Star Wars before we shift over to Doctor Who? Well, I would say at this point, uh, it's it's one of those things where we're, we just got to wait and see what they're going to do with this next film, but it doesn't look like it's really going to improve things because it looks to me like they're, they're kind of uh, desperately uh, trying to go back to some some of the things that have been successful for them because they're kind of foreshadowing uh, the emperor being somehow involved with this. Because uh, let's face it, when you look at it, the lackluster villains that they've had 
so far. Uh, the big bad uh, of the the movie, The Last Jedi, was uh, what's his name, Snoke, who got handily defeated pretty easily. <laughs> yeah, it was like no big deal, right? Like by the brand new Jedi, <laughs> Ray and uh, Kylo Ren, who all of a sudden turned on him, and it's like. You know, it, it's one of those things where it, it's it's really anticlimactic. I mean, you're supposed to have this guy is the big boss of them all, the most feared guy in the galaxy or whatever, and he's just defeated so easily. Like, he's outsmarted so easily by this young girl with no personality. So it's one of those things. <laughs> and all of their guards, no less. All the guards right. that were there. <laughs> nope, those two took it all out. Yipper, because they were oh so powerful, but it was because Ray is so powerful, and uh, it's just it's 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 dull. Let's face it, it's dull. I think they're in their death throes right now, and they're desperately trying to grasp onto something that they think might work. So I, I think if they try and play up the drama of is Ray going to turn bad, and you know is the Emperor going to be involved in this in some way, shape, or form? And there's been talk of you know. Anakin Skywalker's Force Ghost or something being there. I've seen in some of the the different breakdowns of the trailers and stuff. Uh, they're trying to revive something that was successful in the in the past for them, but they're they're looking at the dark side to do that. So it kind of is telling that they're kind of shifting away from this hero archetype and hero mentality to the anti-hero mentality. And that's what they've been doing largely with a lot of entertainment. You'll notice anti-heroes are a very popular thing. Yeah, Deadpool being a big one. Absolutely. Now, there have been a lot of rumors about The Rise of Skywalker, for instance, that the movie isn't even done. It's not even completed. I reshoots beyond all belief, which might be because they did tests hypothetically, and it didn't go over very well. So maybe they're just trying to make sure that they maximize their... Uh, theater dollars you know get butts in seats because one of the big things that these movies would make money off of is not just the merchandising which of course would make them a killing but also return customers people going to see the movies over and over and over again and i'll tell you what i never want to see the last jedi ever again i certainly didn't go to the theaters and pay for it a second time that's for damn sure no and that's the thing i mean and i think they've just came away from something similar to that whole scenario with avengers endgame they did a bunch of last minute rewrites on that too because of the whole brie larson uh thing going on where they they largely uh wrote out uh captain marvel's character from the movie in a lot of ways because uh, from what i understand originally that character was supposed to be a lot more involved in the actual story of the movie but the fans just weren't having it so they She's actually learned unlikable. their lesson Right. That's the thing. Extremely unlikable. Yeah, and you got to wonder why would they write a character like that in? They supposedly still have big plans for that character moving forward in the MCU. But nothing announced for Phase 4. Nope. Now that Tony Stark's dead and Captain America is an old man and all the great characters in the first three phases of the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe, now that that's all done, the, the Phase 4 looks boring. Other than a Doctor Strange movie, <laughs> you know, it's just <laughs> right. like, what are you doing, guys? Robert Downey Jr. carried that film franchise to success, along with the others that came afterwards. But he's the one that set the gold standard. Absolutely. Downey made 
that franchise happen. And you think a bitchy little SJW actress with no personality other than bitchiness is going to carry on from Downey? Are you serious? Yeah, I just can't see it being a thing, you know? Uh, another one that did well with the whole MCU is Chris Evans, I gotta say. Uh, of all the, the different movies that they've done, I think the Captain America series was the best among all of them. So, you know, going from there, you know, it's it's a little off topic from Star Wars, but you could kind of see echoes of the same things going on. And that's just part and parcel of what we're saying. This is an across-the-board thing. This is not just one or two particular uh properties out there, intellectual properties. This is across the board, all through Hollywood. You can see this, the echoes of this through the entire industry. No, that's exactly it. And we can take a moment just to mention some other things that have been going on. For instance, the sixth Terminator movie, which is supposed to be negating all of them other than the first two. It's supposed to be a direct sequel to the first two. And in the first five minutes of the film, they blow away John Connor. Nobody wanted to see this movie. Like, no one cared. This movie flopped. They've lost millions of dollars. There's a Charlie's Angels reboot that just came out, I think maybe a week ago. I'm not even sure exactly what date. Flopped horribly. Lost millions of dollars. People don't want this crap. And that's just it. No, absolutely. Of <laughs> Linda Hamilton walking up and saying, I'll be back all you want. But, you know, it's not the same. <laughs> It's destroying the intellectual property that what made it successful in the first place. It's not believable. But again, let's be honest here. Captain Marvel did make over a billion dollars. But let's be real about that. It's because it was sandwiched in between the two Avengers movies. It was something that was a carry through while folks waited for Endgame, which, of course, did even more money by far. No one gives a flip about this Captain Marvel character. She's kind of stupid, to be perfectly honest with you. The character is ridiculously overpowered. The storyline is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, it's just, I watched it once. I was like, wow, this is dumb. Yeah, it kind of didn't make sense. It didn't really fit in with the rest of anything that was going on. You know what I mean? In the entire MCU, like the, the stories all the way through. Like, there was very little tie-over. Like, it didn't really relate. It was just kind of a platform to make this character, you know, fantastic. This character is going to be the new leader to carry the MCU forward. And I, I just, I don't see it. Well, the other thing is, even though they're costumed superheroes with superpowers, they're all flawed. Iron Man is arrogant. Captain America is out of his depth as far as where he's at, and he feels disconnected to everything. Uh, let's see, Ant-Man was a criminal and is trying to redeem himself. Like, they, we could just go on and on. These people have flaws. And, you know, th this is not what Captain Marvel portrayed at all. Captain Marvel was just this insanely over-the-top, self-centered, over-superpowered character. And uh, the best I can say about that movie was, well, the special effects looked really nice. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. And they had a couple of decent supporting characters, and that's about it. Yeah, he gave a little backstory to Nick Fury, kind of dumb how he lost his eye, but hey, whatever. And yeah, uh, the character of Nick Fury was very much changed from the comic books anyway. That's not the Nick Fury that was with Captain America. Nick Fury was also a super soldier, if I recall correctly, from the original storyline anyway. But uh, the Marvel MCU has not stuck with all of the original characters. They kind of compacted a lot and shifted certain things. They took a lot of the major traits for the main characters, but it's not an exact retelling. Uh, Spider-Man, they've really not done very well, in my opinion. I, I like 
Tom Holland as Peter Parker. He's fine, but he's not really Spider-Man. You know, he's more like Spider-Boy and really playing second fiddle to uh, Tony Stark the entire time and still is even in his own second solo movie. It's still, it's all about Iron Man, even though he's not even in it. Right. And they've, they've taken some liberties with, uh, you know, the storylines in the comics and stuff like that. But uh, a lot of successful film series will, will do that. And, you know, I, I think they've, they've done pretty well for themselves up until this point with the MCU. But we'll see what phase four holds as far as that goes. I mean, they're talking about trying to rehash the Fantastic Four films again. Again, they, they didn't. You know, they've never made a decent Fantastic Four film. The only one that really came close was The Rise of the Silver Surfer. That one was halfway decent, and that's only because it had the Silver Surfer in it. Right. So, I mean, you know, beyond that, it was, you know, nothing special. So we'll see if they could actually revive that brand and make it viable as a cinematic thing. I just don't see it being that way. They've tried, and it hasn't really translated successfully to the big screen. The Fantastic Four is probably a little harder because they're kind of oddball characters. But just as a little personal reference here, I'm tugging at my memory here, and I recall that the Silver Surfer is Wayne McCroy's favorite superhero from when we were young. And we used to play the Marvel superheroes role-playing game. You are correct, Jason. I've always had this thing for the Silver Surfer. I always thought he was a fascinating character. So, um, you know, and he was he was great in his comic books. But... Uh, that's another one of those things where they, they could have done better with his character on screen uh, with that movie. And had they done so, uh, I think the film would have turned out better. But, uh, you know, it was kind of lackluster by, at the end of the day. Now, there are probably a lot of alchemical tie-ins, we could say, with the character of the Silver Surfer. But I think that's, again, something we can save for another episode for us together. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's there's a lot of different esoteric tie-ins with a lot of this stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely something we could break down more in future uh, iterations of this show here. So let's move along to Doctor Who. And as I said, today, November 23rd, that we're recording this on, is actually the 56th anniversary of the first episode of Doctor Who being shown, the day after the JFK assassination. So... An Unearthly Child was shown on the BBC 56 years ago, and that's something. And, of course, we have the character of, of the Doctor being portrayed by an older gentleman named William Hartnell. And he was the grandfather to another character, and they're supposed to be aliens, and they even established all this right in the first episode, uh, named Susan. And then the adventures start with two of Susan's school teachers because it's taking place in what was then the contemporary time of 1963, and they go back in Earth's history to the caveman-ish era. They never really said an exact year, but that's the setup for the fact that Doctor Who is about time travel and space travel and going to fantastic places. Now, let's just be really obvious here. The character of the Doctor has always, without a doubt, been a masculine character. The Doctor has always been male. If you want to talk about the classic show, we have Doctors 1 through 7, all being male. There was the 90, 1996 TV movie made by a joint effort of Fox and the BBC, and I think a Canadian company too was in there or something like that, brought in Paul McGann, a British actor who I thought was actually quite excellent. Uh, that didn't fly as far as ratings because they 
put it opposite Roseanne at the time, which was the number one show on TV. Really dumb mistake in my opinion, but whatever. And then, of course, we had the 2000 reboot with an excellent actor named Christopher Eccleston, who was known as a very serious actor, a lot of uh, very hardcore roles. I do believe he was a Shakespearean actor, although I might be wrong on that, but he certainly has the gravitas for such things. And when he bowed out, they brought in the excellent David Tennant, again, an excellent actor, someone who is very, very convincing, but always masculine, even though the doctor plays off that he's not really a dude-ish, you know, doesn't think about things like a normal earth human male would. He's a guy. He's always treated like a man. He's always acted like a man. You could certainly go back to the classic show and he's always acted like a man. Things that he has done are definitely extremely masculine. And of course, then we have the 11th doctor played by Matt Smith. And then the 12th doctor played by Peter Capaldi. And we have the in-between, what they call the War Doctor, played by the most excellent John Hurt. Again, a man. The Doctor has always been a man. However, starting in the 11th Doctor's run, there was the hint and the revelation that one Time Lord had switched his sex to female. Out of will, because this character was portrayed as a maverick of sorts, and I believe the name was the Corsair. I guess the concept was the character wanted to see what it was like to be the opposite sex, that kind of thing. It was never implied that this was something that goes on all the time, and I'll be really blunt about this. I know the classic show really well inside and out, and it was very well established that Time Lords were Time Lords and Time Ladies were Time Ladies. The Doctor and all of the masculine characters always regenerated into males and the females regenerated into females. There was none of this weird gender-bending nonsense that is in the new show. That's it, and anybody can argue with me as much as they like, but it's not in the classic show. I know it inside out, I know a lot of other people who do, and they all agree with this fact. It is a fact. The Doctor is a male. What's going on now, and I'm going to hand this over to Wayne to discuss, is not sticking with the original lore. And of course, there is an agenda behind it. And of course, most people don't like it, despite the blatant lies and propaganda that surrounds Jodie Whittaker and the current showrunner and all of the things going on with the current incarnation that is called Doctor Who, but absolutely is not Doctor Who. Wayne, take it away. No, it's absolutely not Doctor Who. And as I recall growing up, Jason, Doctor Who was your favorite television show. Uh, I remember very distinctly watching episodes of it with Tom Baker on there with you and uh, several of the other doctors. Um, so, I mean, when you think of the Doctor traditionally, you're thinking of probably one or two actors. You're thinking of Tom Baker primarily from the original uh, series. And uh, then uh, you could think ahead to uh, David Tennant because that's that's the one that kind of really put Doctor Who back on the map here in, in the later era. Yeah, let's establish a quick bit of history. Tom Baker established the classic show worldwide. My personal favorite is John Pertwee, if anyone cares. That's the third Doctor. But yes, Tom Baker established Doctor Who as a force to be reckoned with all over the world way back when in the classic show. David Tennant did the same thing in the modern era from about 2006 to, I think, 2010-ish. I forget exactly what year he left, 2010, 2011, in, in that ballpark. And David Tennant basically is considered 
the modern Tom Baker as far as putting Doctor Who in a light of its own, really standing on its own feet. But anyway, go ahead and carry on. Well, anyway, but, uh, you know, it's it's not arguable that uh, the primary actors and stuff that are associated with being the Doctor are male. So, I mean, why would you take something that, that has been uh, traditionally a masculine character all the way through and try and replace it with this uh, female character? And once again, it seems to me that this uh, this character is, once again, one of those types that's not really likable and has very little personality traits. So it, it's, it's one of those things. I, I could see, okay, if you're going to replace... Uh, the main character with a female lead, it should really be a really strong female lead. And I just don't feel that that's the case with this Jodie Whittaker. Uh, I just don't get that impression from her. It's it's not something that I see, although they try and push it off as her being a strong female lead. I just don't see it. I agree with you completely. And so do probably millions of other people. Now, let's be honest here and really establish some things here. Jodie Whittaker is an outspoken feminist. But when we talk about feminists in the modern era, in 2019, we're not talking about things like equal voting rights and things like that that were actually important and women absolutely deserved. We're talking about this insane nonsense where they're basically not just saying that they want to be equal to men, but they are men. They're acting like men. These characters that they're creating are not feminine. They are men. And it's so important for people to understand that men and women are different. This is super important. And they both play a very important role in the household and in human development. The concept of the traditional family is absolutely being devastated with this nonsense that is being pushed. And of course, as we've been discussing this whole time, there is a higher agenda behind all of this stuff. And it is to destroy the society that we have, what traditional society is. And I, I am, I'm going to go as far as to say that Jodie Whittaker is probably not a good person, at least not the way we would view it. She is behind these concepts. She is behind all of the things that they're doing in this show. And that's her thing, man. She's cool with that. That does not make a good person in my view. How do you feel? Well, I think it's it's a blatant uh, attempt at the normalization of this gender confusion and all this, uh, you know, anything goes type, kind of mentality. And it flies in the face of traditional values and morals. And uh, like you said, this is largely put out there to uh, destabilize society uh, and break up uh, Break up families when it comes down to it. It's it's about uh, breaking down the family unit. And there, this is a, another social engineering agenda that's been going on for a long time. But it's really kicked up into high gear now. And that's that's part of what's involved because your, your basic unit of society has always been the family unit. So if they break down the family unit and uh, create all this gender confusion, it, it causes chaos. And uh, one of the big things that these social controllers like is chaos because they have a, a motto, Jason, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. Yes, I am. And it's called Ordo Ab Chao, order out of chaos. So that's, that's their mandate. That's what they do. They cause this chaos and then they bring about order from this chaos. And they do this through government mandates among other things. So 
This is a social control ploy. This is all about social engineering on a grand scale. And uh, it's it's largely intertwined through our entertainment to try to normalize it, to get people's minds familiar with the idea that this is what the new normal is going to be. It's going to be a bunch of militant feminist women in charge. And it's going to be a bunch of this gender bending nonsense, anything goes mentality. And, you know, everything's acceptable and you dare not speak out against it because everything is moral relativism anymore. And that's what it's about. It's establishing what's called moral relativism, whereas anything goes. Uh, there's there's no uh, absolute moral compass, per se, for anything. There's no absolute value of what's right and what's wrong. And that's what they're trying to eliminate in society, is take away our moral compass and establish that there's no absolute right or wrong, and anything goes. And through doing this, this causes a further destabilization of society, and they're doing it through use of entertainment. And that's what they're doing to normalize this. And they're they're pushing this in very subtle ways in these uh, entertainment platforms like this to try and get people's subconscious minds used to these ideas and condition them for this. And it's a useful tool that they use, and it's called Hegelian dialectic. And what this is, is they create a problem. They have a pre-prescribed uh, solution for this problem. And uh, once they create the problem, the public outcry for the problem becomes so great that uh, when they step in with their solution and become the saviors of this whole thing, that uh, they could push along whatever social agenda they want. Problem, reaction, solution. That's another easy way to think about it. So they create a problem. The public reacts to it. And lo and behold, they step forward with their solution that always, always eliminates or reduces more of our rights as a people. So that's where this is going. That's what this is about. It's about social control. And uh, that's what people need to understand. There's a bigger agenda at play here. It's not about making money. It's not about, uh, you know, just trying to make uh, the whole gender gap thing uh, reasonable or, or to make sure that people understand that the genders are equal or that, you know, Everybody has a right to to be whatever they want, and they always distort this on sexuality, and that's the thing. I mean, that's that should not be something that uh, you know is a public display thing. This is something that uh, has has shifted uh, from traditional values, whereas sexuality was something that you would discuss in private with your significant other, and it was something that was very private with people. Now, everything's on public display, and it's all about what other kind of weird sexual stuff can they put out there to normalize, and that's what's going on, and this is going to lead to further degradation down the road. Right, and it's not just that people of different sexualities are more in the limelight. They're parading it around and shoving it in other people's face, which is the part that I have a problem with. I don't care who sleeps with who, what you're attracted to. I don't care. And I don't think most people do. I doubt very much you do. It's when they're shoving it in our face and using it as part of a narrative where it doesn't belong that the real problem is. Now, what's interesting about Doctor Who versus Star Wars. Now, Star Wars has had a lot of backlash. And as a matter of fact, I meant to mention this earlier, there's actually a loose movement, hashtag maybe you could say, called the fandom menace that developed over 
the whole Star Wars thing. I think it's predominantly because of The Last Jedi, but quite honestly, I had the, that, the same fandom menace type mentality right after The Force Awakens, but I don't think a lot of people were there yet. They didn't see it until The Last Jedi came out. But with Doctor Who, a lot of people right from the get-go said, no way, don't flip the sexuality, that's not cool. And a lot of people gave it a chance, and the first episode with Jodie Whittaker did extremely well, and then it crashed and burned right afterwards. And I have been doing some homework, as I always do, on the merchandising with current Doctor Who, and it's almost non-existent. People don't want it. Hot Topic no longer has a Doctor Who section, and as a matter of fact, most places don't carry very much, and when they do... I see a lot of older stuff. That's right. I see it with the male doctors. All of them except the current one. Not much with the current one. Because people don't want it. They're not buying it. They don't want to be part. As we were saying earlier, people want to be part of something. They do not want to be part of what the 13th quote-unquote doctor is supposed to be. The doctor is a man. And that's that. And you can keep insisting that Jodie Whittaker is playing the Doctor, but she is not. And people just aren't spending their money on it. But this is where we see things really getting crazy because they're going forward with it. They're pushing harder and harder and harder. Now, I did find out that even merchandising in Australia, you can't even get stuff for Doctor Who anymore because they can't get enough orders for stuff that in involves Jodie Whittaker to fulfill whatever it is that they need to, to have a certain amount of numbers to bring it over to Australia. So how about that? It's not even good enough to fulfill a single shipment worth to get it into stores over in Australia. That should tell you everything. A place that has always been very Doctor Who friendly. They're very Britishy to begin with, I think it's safe to say, maybe not exactly, but they are kind of on the Britishy side and they've definitely embraced Doctor Who in the past. So that should tell you everything. Hot topic, definitely not. When you look at reviews on Amazon and in IMDb and all that, most people are slamming the Jodie Whittaker casting and all of the stories and the political agenda that's laced through all of them and that's the other problem it's not just that they've flipped the sexuality of a character that shouldn't have been flipped their storylines are atrocious it's just agenda laced political garbage but anyway wayne right so that's the whole thing in a nutshell is pretty much this is a social engineering agenda that's been put forth to kind of normalize this whole gender confusion thing and push this militant feminism and all of the, uh, the, the poisonous moral relativism that goes along with that stuff. Now, don't get me wrong. We're not bashing anybody for their sexuality or, you know, or feminists or anything like that. This is, this is toxic, what they're doing. This is like beyond the pale like toxic feminism and uh, the pushing of the trans agenda and other things along with it. So this is what's really going on. And you have to ask, okay, well, if this is going on, who's responsible for doing this? So I think a, a good way we could move forward here, Jason, is, is maybe along uh, with this episode, you could put up the image of that uh, promo poster uh, for the, the new season of, uh, Doctor Who that came out that was the first season with uh, Jodie Whittaker on the poster. You know the one I'm talking about because we've discussed this and actually broken it down before. 
And let's set up for that because we should talk about this. I sent you the imagery when they first showed Jodie Whittaker in her costume and all that. And you broke it down. And there's a lot of symbolism there. And I'll let you discuss that in a moment. But I sent you some from earlier on with David Tennant. And you didn't even find anything in it. So obviously, there's a lot more intent going on with Jodie Whittaker's casting than David Tennant's. But go ahead. Why don't you break down some of what you found in that imagery with Jodie Whittaker. And this isn't crazy conspiracy stuff, folks. These are things that once it's pointed out, it's obviously there. And we can start with a new logo that they've used for Doctor Who that they've now plastered all over the classic show too, which just absolutely disgusts me. Right, and that that's the whole thing. I mean, what people need to understand is I like to tell people that, uh, you know, through, through my years of research and stuff like that, I, I accidentally became an expert in occult philosophy. So uh, I could I could put that out there for people. So like this stuff, you know, if you know anything about esoteric or occult things or secret societies, and that's where a lot of this stems from, is from this, the teachings of the secret societies. Uh, and that's something people are largely unaware of too. But that's where most of this social engineering stuff comes out of, is out of these secretive groups. So uh, I know it may sound crazy to a lot of people, but I assure you, once you you dig down deep enough at the topmost tiers of these secret societies, there are people in there that are steering agendas. And uh, most of those are social engineering type agendas. And we could begin by just breaking down this image that you sent me, Jason, uh, with the occult symbolism that's placed in there. And uh, I gave you a document back where I broke down distinctly uh, seven different things that I could point out right off of the bat that are just occult aspects to this whole picture. And this kind of sets the tone for what the intention is behind putting Jodie Whittaker in this spot as the doctor and what they intend to do with the show in the future. So let's take a look at that. Now, uh, it'll probably benefit people if we could uh, just put up the, the screenshot of this this uh, picture for them to look at and reference while I'm talking about this. The number one thing I point out on there is there's a sunrise in the background, and this represents the dawning of a new age. Remember earlier, I talked about uh, an organization called the Golden Dawn. This is a direct homage to that. The sunrise in the background represents a new age, the dawning of a new age. Uh, number two, in the background, there's a barren mountain. And in the foreground is a lush is some lush green grass. This represents stepping out of what they quote, unquote, the dark place and into the light. And you'll, you'll see a lot of these secret societies and stuff talk about light an awful lot it's a very highly symbolic thing and this goes back once again also to uh the character ray from star wars same kind of thing it's all about light with a lot of these people and that's that's primarily a freemasonic thing you'll see because uh most people see you know the word freemason and they think these are guys that uh, just lay down blocks and build buildings and stuff what people don't realize is freemason the word Freemason or Freemasonry actually comes from a French word, Freemason, which means sons of light. And that's what it's really about. It's an esoteric group. It's not about, uh, you know, what people traditionally think. So from there, we'll go ahead and move on to some of the other things that uh, the symbols and symbolism that I was able to pick out in this picture. Number three, 
you'll notice that the clothing the doctor is wearing is significant. First, let's start with the yellow suspenders. These are a symbol of the purity of the Aryan race and also represent decay, sickness, and jealousy. That's right, the blonde-haired woman is a symbol of Aryan supremacy. People don't realize this. Are you beginning to see how these social controllers mock and laugh at you? This is what it is. It's a poke in the eye. People are, are you know, trying to play up this, this woman as a hero, and she's representing the Aryan race. And I'm not making this up. This is, this is something people could research for themselves if they, they know the right places to look. Uh, you have to look in old Freemasonic books and, and things from different secret societies, and you can find a lot of this symbolism in there. Number four, the doctor is wearing a trench coat. The trench coat is a symbol for women's emancipation. Ironically, though, it is also a symbol for prostitution. Yet again, you're the butt of another inside joke. You're being poked in the eye again. So they're saying... You know, this symbol of women's liberation and women's emancipation is also a symbol for prostitution. So this tells me Jody Whitaker is a sellout to the agenda. So that's what it's all about. That trench coat also has a hood, by the way. Yeah, I didn't even catch that on that the first time through. So, but yeah, the hood that's covering the head. So, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of hiding your true identity. And that's that's another thing. And that wasn't even one that I had pointed out originally. Number five, the rainbow on the doctor's shirt is a symbol for gay pride. Long before it was used as a symbol for gay pride, the rainbow was a symbol representing Lucifer. Now, now their sick jokes are getting serious, aren't they? Number six, you'll notice that the doctor is wearing brown boots with brown laces tied only partway up. The boots are a neo-Nazi symbol. The color brown represents foundations. The fact that the laces are tied partway up indicates preparation. This represents the preparation of the new foundation for humankind. Again, they're laughing at you because of your lack of understanding. And this is, these things, these promo pictures and stuff are carefully crafted by people. And people need to understand this. This isn't just some random picture that they took. They said, okay, put this outfit on and go stand over there and we'll put these props (laughs) in place. That's not how this is with Hollywood. Everything's very, very carefully crafted with this stuff. And again, I sent you a promo image from David Tennant's first year with Billy Piper, and you said, I don't really see anything in this. And I said, neither do I, really. No, it was just, it looked like more of a, you know, just a a promo shoot, what you would expect a promo shoot to look like. But this one, this is very purposefully put together. So let's look at the last one here, number seven. The pose of the doctor is very telling. You'll notice that she is standing with her hands straight down at her sides and her left hand slightly hidden. This indicates that the people or person who put this photo shoot together are initiates of the left-hand path. And it also encodes the dominance of the feminine aspect in this period. Now, here's where the this really gets blatantly occultic, okay? You'll notice that the doctor's feet are very close together with one foot slightly in front of the other as if she's walking on a tightrope. The entire pose she's standing in is an exact, and I mean exact, representation of of the pose that is attributed to multiple ancient Egyptian statues of the goddess Isis. The representation of the Brotherhood, or their search for the lost word, and that's what Isis really represents. The Brotherhood, these secret societies, or their quest for the lost word of Freemasonry. And uh, 
this is also known by other other different uh, names that they call it too. Uh, one of them that they use is the philosopher's stone, and this this is you know something that they're constantly looking for. They also sometimes banty about the term the great work, uh, and this is what they're looking to do. So this is a representation of their search for that lost word or that great work or that philosopher's stone. So the new female doctor represents the embodiment of the order of the quest. And that's another name that they go by, or they also sometimes call themselves the secret college. And this is pretty much all the initiates of the various secret societies, the higher echelons of them. They refer to themselves as this. And, uh, this is seeking to bring about a new golden age free from the ignorance of the profane. And guess what, folks? Who is the profane? You and I. And that's what it's all about. Now, there's another bit of symbolism that I don't think you noticed because, well, I'm a little obsessive about this stuff, or at least I used to be. The plaque that's on the front of the police box used to be blue and white. It was white lettering on a blue background. It has been changed for Jody Whitaker to a black background with white lettering what do you make of that well i would say that that's uh, there's a darker agenda at play if it used to be blue and now it's black so uh i mean that's that's kind of an homage uh to the principle of alchemy so uh you know if you're you're looking at that um that's not something i would pick up on because i never looked at the details of uh, what the plaque on the TARDIS, the coloration and stuff like that originally was and that it had changed. So I hadn't realized there was a change there. But that change is significant now that you mention it. It's something I caught on right in the beginning there. And they did rearrange the police box a few times over the years. It definitely looks a little different. The David Tennant era one was changed with uh, Matt Smith's coming in where they made it look more like the original one where it had the ambulance symbol on the opposite side where the plaque is. But it was always blue with Jodie Whittaker and only with Jodie Whittaker. To my knowledge, it changed from white on blue to white on black. Well, that's an interesting thing right there. But uh, yeah, I mean, you could see this this one promo poster in and of itself is loaded with symbolism. And there's plenty more things in there. Uh, but for time's sake, we'll we'll kind of leave it there for now, because another thing they like to do with a lot of this stuff is put embedded images and stuff into these pictures. And uh, we had gone through at one point and, you know, I had pointed out a bunch of those to you as well. But we won't go through that here. Uh, maybe someday if people are interested enough in it, we could do something more with that and actually show them in the photos where these embedded images and stuff are. And they do this as a, a way to uh, hit your subconscious mind with programming without you realizing it. Right. Now, this is not just for Doctor Who, of course. The Rise of Skywalker poster also contains a lot of this imagery. There's a lot of the red on blue that we've talked about on Crow Seven Radio a lot. Very prominent in the Rise of Skywalker poster. If you look at that, there's imagery all over the place. Ray going uphill, battling the patriarchy, all that kind of nonsense. It's written in that poster big time. And I don't know if you have looked at that, Wayne, but it was really obvious the first time I saw it how contrived the whole thing was and it's very similar not stylistically but very similarly inscribed the way this doctor who poster is right and that's that's another thing anything like this that's going to get an awful lot of eyes looking at it at one point or another is going to be heavily encoded with different things different themes and ideas and concepts in there so this is another tool 
that these social controllers use. They use the still images. They don't just use necessarily like the films or the storylines or, you know, television shows. They use the still images and stuff associated with them for programming purposes and stuff too. So they put these different uh, concepts and ideas in there. So I know this may sound uh, like some far out stuff for anybody who's just kind of tuning in just to hear us kind of bash on their, you know, on, on, these different intellectual properties that have been just getting decimated by Hollywood. But uh, I assure you, there's something to this. And looking into it, you will, if you dig deeper, you will find that there's a lot more to it than what we're, we're even just saying. And, you know, we've gone quite some time here and we should probably start wrapping up. But let's take a moment to talk about why is this being done and money making be damned because. Star Wars certainly could have made a lot more money had they not shoved this agenda into it. Doctor Who is losing money. The only reason Doctor Who can survive is because, the way I understand it in England, is with that license fee that they collect from the public, they can pay for whatever they want. However, Doctor Who used to make them a ton of money with merchandising, and it's not anymore, and it doesn't matter. So, what are your thoughts on that? Well, basically... uh... That tells me a couple different things, really. The first thing that that tells me is money's not an issue for these people that are pushing this agenda. They have all of it in their control to begin with, so it's not a concern. They're more concerned with pushing the agenda. And that also tells me that uh, the agenda that's behind this agenda is something that's unifying all these different people from the intelligence agencies, the, the entertainment industry, the secret societies, all of these people that are you know in these positions of power, they're pushing something that they're all unified in their support of. And what is that thing? Well, I think we'll get there in a minute or two when we actually follow it down the lines of where it leads. Right. And as we stated right early on in this episode, we intend to start doing a lot more of this and start breaking things down for you. And a lot of the nerd channels that I like to watch to basically get a litmus test of what's going on, they're figuring it out. They definitely recognize something's there. They know something's up. They may not know what's behind it, however, and they're just pointing things out over and over and over again and aren't happy about it and don't want to support it and are asking other people not to support it, which I... Completely support. Don't support these things, folks. Vote with your wallets, because I do got to wonder, maybe we're not completely gone yet, and at some point, in some place, they still have to answer to a degree about the money-making aspects of these things. I have trouble believing that companies can spend $300 million on a film and it lose hundreds of millions of dollars, and people are okay with that in the hierarchy of Hollywood. I would think that we're not so far gone that this couldn't keep happening over and over and over again. For instance, I don't think you're going to see another Terminator film. This one flopped and lost them stupid amounts of money. I just don't think they're going to make another one. Right. Now, with Star Wars, Star Wars is owned by Disney. Disney is part of the problem. Let's just be blunt about that. <laughs> Disney is part of the big six. They own so much crap, it's ridiculous. And they can afford to lose money and probably are okay with doing it as long as they are getting the agenda moved along. The one that confuses me a bit is the BBC because they are funded. And if they use the money that they were making from Doctor Who, which was, and I mean past tense, was its 
biggest cash cow out of all their properties because they don't make anything else that makes a lot of money. I think the only thing, very few things made them money. Sherlock made them some money, but they don't make it often enough to keep up with the fans and, and having new content and all that stuff like that. So they don't have anything going on besides Doctor Who. That's why they have kept it going, even when interest had waned a little bit from the heyday of David Tennant, especially. But now it's losing money. They're just paying for it and no one's buying the merchandise. I'm sure they're making some money off of it. I'm sure some people are buying the DVDs or whatever, but nowhere near. They're not buying the figures. There's no books. There's no comics. Like all the things that were generating tons of cash during the David Tennant era and even into the Matt Smith era, they were making money. They were making a lot of money. And I can only wonder if somewhere in the hierarchy at the BBC that people aren't going, what the hell is going on here? I know they're really into their diversity and inclusion nonsense right now, but I don't know, man. This is what we're going to explore as we move forward. Are we so far gone that they can lose literally tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars to push their agenda, and they're still going to keep producing the same garbage? What do you think, Wayne, to close up here? Well, I think uh, the important aspect of things we should really look at here and focus on is not so much, you know, the fact that they're they're hemorrhaging money with a lot of this stuff, but uh, what we need to look at is is what's behind it. Now, like you had stated earlier, a lot of these people, they intrinsically know something is wrong and something's going on, and they're pointing out symptoms of the problem, but they don't understand exactly what the problem is or what it is that is behind this whole agenda. That's where you and I come in, because we've explored this whole thing all the way down to the nuts and bolts of it all. And uh, I could tell you it's uh, a little something and we'll, we'll give the listeners a little bit of homework here to do. Uh, there's, there's a key term that they need to look up and it's a little something called transhumanism. <laughs> and that, that is the, the driving agenda behind all of it. Any type of, uh, you know, quote unquote conspiracy theories and stuff you see out there, this is the driving force behind all of it. This is what's going on in the world today. And this is what uh, a lot of the, the fan bases of these franchises and stuff really need to look at and understand. This is what's driving it. It's not about, uh, you know, entertainment anymore. It was never really about entertainment. It was about programming people's minds through this outlet. And, uh, you know, as crazy as it sounds... This is what's going on at the bottom of it, and the entertainment's pushing it, and uh, this is the, the direction that it's getting steered in. And, and people may say, well, wait a minute, feminism and transgender things, that's a far cry from what you're calling, say, transhumanism. What is transhumanism? Like, to be beyond human? And that's the thing. I mean, there's, there's a simple, another little concept people could look at that's called the Overton window. And I'm going to give the listeners some homework here. Look up two concepts, transhumanism and one called the Overton window. And uh, then you'll quickly begin to understand, once you understand what both of those things are, you'll understand how transgenderism is one step of the Overton window away from transhumanism and where this is all going. And that's the agenda driving it all in the entertainment industry and in society as a whole. That's it, folks. They are leading everyone down a path, and it is your decision whether to tread on it or not. 
I hope you've enjoyed this return for Secrets of Saturn. Wayne and I intend to do a Secrets of Saturn live stream on a regular basis where we will discuss these concepts and break things down further for you. Because believe me, there's a lot going on and it's not going away as far as Wayne or I know. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you again soon. to see